Hi, it's Hal Anderson. Thanks for checking out the daily podcast for my show, Connecting Winnipeg. And if you can, please listen live weekdays from 10 to noon on 680 CJOB. start the show with a friend. He's become a real friend of ours around here. Jason Kindrachuk, Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair, Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Hal. Hi, thanks a lot for doing this. The province will launch its flu campaign today. Uh, You know, with all the masking and social distancing, we haven't seen a lot of flu, the, the influenza, uh, during uh, the pandemic, do you think that might change this season? Oh, I hope not. Um, listen, you know, we, I always kind of take the, the vantage point that you know we we tend to minimize influenza, unfortunately, in, in many ways. And when you look at you know certainly global uh, you know global deaths on on an annual basis, and, and certainly the the toll that it takes in uh, North America, it's it's a bad disease. Um, you know what we'll see this year, I think, is going to be highly dependent on behaviors, right? We, we really showed that last year we could get things under control, which is, which is awesome. It certainly takes away that healthcare, um, you, know, uh, you know, kind of capacity that, that's required to, to treat influenza patients. Um, this year, it's, it is going to depend on vaccination rate uptakes and, and how people respond. Can we do some myth busting in a minute here? I, I, I want to uh, do some myth busting when it comes to the flu, but let me just uh, throw something out that I hear from a lot of people uh, who don't necessarily uh, believe in COVID and, and the vaccine, or they have doubts in both. Uh, they'll say COVID is, is just the flu. What, what, what's your reaction when you hear that? I get frustrated because on two sides, right? So, so COVID certainly is, is not the flu. I mean, we've, we're living in a pandemic that's killed you know, around 5 million people globally. So we, we are seeing something different than what we see traditionally with flu. But I would also counter with that with saying, even if this was just flu, just flu is bad. It kills 500,000 people uh, a year annually, you know, or, or somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, you know, 30 to 50,000 in the U.S., certainly a few thousand in Canada. The, these are numbers, when we look at them, we can't just shy away and say, oh, it's just a run-of-the-mill disease. It's not. It is always a, a massive public health impact. And remind me how much more deadly COVID-19 is compared to just the flu. Oh, it gets so difficult, right, Hal? I mean, I think when we look at, at case fatality rates, you know, the, the difficulty is for, for seasonal flu, you know, certainly it's in, in the sub-1% area uh, globally, but it, it really depends on, on the jurisdiction, right? And same thing with COVID. So, uh, you know, when you start getting into age groups, it depends. For young kids, flu, you know, certainly seems to put more kids in the hospital, um, which we've gotten way lucky with with COVID, um, but it hasn't been zero. And certainly in those older age groups, we're seeing that COVID hits those older age groups very, very hard and certainly has found ways to get into middle age groups as well. Well, we certainly don't want to see uh, flu people end up in hospital right now with the situation uh, with hospitals, that's for sure. All right, some myths about the flu, and I want you to bust them here. Um, I don't need to get a flu vaccine until someone I know is sick. Yeah, no, absolutely not true. Um, so there, there's a couple things, right? So influenza certainly can transmit uh, just prior to symptomatic it, um, you know, uh, infection. So, you know, prior to those symptom developments, uh, you know, about a day before, we can see transmission. Um, and just because you don't necessarily know anybody around you that has flu, it doesn't mean that it's not moving through the population, right? It's like COVID. 
um, you know, th- those cases are going to be, uh, you know, be increasing in, in the population. And we need to do everything we can to try and cut down transmission uh, before, you know, before, unfortunately, it, it breaks out and, and is a little bit too late. Here's another one. I never get sick, so I don't need to get vaccinated. Yeah, you know, we, we always hear that, right? Uh, listen, it, a lot of people that end up with severe influenza, you know, have often say the same thing beforehand, where, you know, it's this idea that, listen, I, I haven't gotten sick, my immune system's fine. Well, how do you know that, right? And, and certainly, I, I think, again, COVID should have wisened us up a little bit to say, yeah, we know that there are high-risk populations, but that doesn't mean that we see zero cases in between those. And certainly trying to predict whether or not you are going to get uh, severe disease is not something that they, I personally you have the capacity to do. All right, here's one that I just heard the other day, in fact. I think flu vaccines have the potential to create strains that are vaccine-resistant, like what can happen with the overdose of antibiotics. Yeah, so bacteria are very, very different from viruses, right? So bacteria can respond directly to their environment. Um, they, they have their own active metabolism. This is what they do, which is why they've been so problematic. Flu viruses have a couple of differences, right? One is they mutate fairly frequently as they move through the population, but they can also recombine with other flu viruses. So when we think about this idea of of vaccine resistance, what we have to appreciate is that flu does a really good job of being able to counteract vaccines just through its nature of transmission. We hear this one with COVID too. It's better to be naturally exposed to the flu to keep natural defenses strong. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've said this before, right? So when you look at, at the immune system, whether you're you know, being presented with, with you know, that, that viral antigen in the form of the virus or in the form of a vaccine, your immune system is responding similarly to both, right? So then you start adding up the risk as- assessment side of it, which is the less risky option. Is it better to be vaccinated and not actually get infected or to, to basically take that gamble and roll the dice and say, okay, well, if I get infected, I'm hoping that I don't have severe disease, and I'm also hoping I don't transmit it to somebody else. I always would go with the the former rather than the latter. All right, and one more myth here, and then I want to move on to a couple of COVID questions I have for you. Final myth for um, uh, Dr. Kindrichuk to bust here for us. Last time I got the flu vaccine, it made me sick. The vaccine itself made me sick. Yeah, we got to remember that the flu vaccine does not allow you to produce replicating virus, right? So listen, I, I have a strong immune response when I get vaccinated. Certainly the, the few hours uh, after I get vaccinated, my, my arm's sore and, you know, I, I get a bit of a, a bit of a fever. But that's not that surprising. You're, you're activating your immune system. To me, um, you know, you can't get the flu from the vaccine. You can certainly get some symptoms of, of being vaccinated, um, but that's far better than ending up with, with severe flu. Jason, thanks for doing that. We'll find out later on uh, this morning what the province's plan is uh, for its flu campaign this season. But uh, let's hope we don't have a bad flu season because that's just going to make everything else worse. Uh, You know, I I do want you to react to our COVID-19 numbers and where we're at with COVID here in the province as we look to the west of us in Saskatchewan and we see how horrible it is there uh, moving people to other provinces, ICU uh, units, uh, ICU uh, patients, pardon me, uh, to other provinces. It really does seem like we had more people vaccinated when the fourth wave hit and that is saving us from what we're seeing to the west of us. Yeah, you know, listen, I've had the privilege of living in both provinces during the pandemic, right? So, you know, Saskatchewan, for a large part of the pandemic, did very, very well. 
um, you know, what, what were the, you know, the, the final defining factors of, of what made the difference in the fourth wave? Certainly vaccination rates. I think behaviors, though, as well, right? I, I think we have to go back to this idea of complimenting people in Manitoba that have continued to take the virus seriously. So even when they didn't necessarily need to take as many restrictions or precautions as, as have been required uh, through, through the mandates and recommendations, I think you've been able to see that people have continued to try to ensure that they you know, basically cut down on, on their transmission risk. So all of these things are, are important. Pfizer has released details of its study looking at the effectiveness of, COVID, of its COVID-19 vaccine in 5 to 11-year-olds, and it's 91% effective. Your thoughts? Yeah, interesting, right? So, so not, you know, 90, I think it's 90.7%, uh, you know, effective against uh, symptomatic infection. We, we don't see, you know, any high risks of adverse events, which is important. Um, but we also have to appreciate that, you know, there are 2,200 kids, I think, in that study. Um, so certainly there, there needs to be a lot of, you know, post-authorization uh, monitoring to ensure uh, that, that all those are held in check. But it's a third of the dose. It looks good. Um, and we know that kids can still get infected, which is you know, one of those underlying myths of COVID is that kids don't get infected. Well, they do. It may not put as many kids in the hospital as what it does adults. But if we have a vaccine preventable disease, uh, you know, I, we should be using the vaccine to prevent getting those kids in the hospital in the first place. And Jason, one of the things that I've liked about you during the pandemic is that you're not afraid when it's needed to give an expert opinion, right? Sometimes, you know, experts are all about the numbers. You're not afraid to say, here's what I think. And I, I really appreciate that uh, about you. Uh, the federal government has lifted its global advisory, uh, first put in place in March of 2020, asking Canadians to avoid non-essential travel outside the country. Would you uh, would you advise non-essential travel right now? I uh, for me, and I'll give you my opinion on this. I I don't plan on going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, I know it's a good question, right? Certainly, listen for for some of our research. You know, we're we're debating right now. Um, you know, whether or not we're ready to to travel internationally. Uh, to me, you know, certainly, I think that there's the importance of recognizing that we've been vaccinated. The vaccines have been holding up really well. That's good. Um, but we also have to appreciate we don't want to be the people that are, are transmitting it to areas where they have low vaccine uptake. So I, I'm very, very cautious uh, in that regard. I think that if uh, you know we, we want to watch the trends of, of Delta, certainly in those vulnerable regions of the world, areas that have high vaccine uptake, you know, probably you know, travel is actually OK right now and seems to be safe. But we, we really have to judge that based on, uh, on what area we're, we're trying to travel to. Ottawa, by the way, still advising Canadians against traveling on cruise ships. And then I'll just ask you, and I like to try and end with you by saying anything else that you're seeing that's of interest that I should be asking you about that I haven't asked you about because that's my <laughs> that's my list of questions. But maybe something else is happening, and, and I would love it if you'd point it out. Yeah, no, it's a great question, right? Listen, I, I, I'm an Ebola guy by nature, by our research, so we, we have another outbreak going on the DRC. Um, not to try to put the spotlight and, and shift it onto Ebola from COVID, but I think it's important for people to recognize that, listen, while we are battling this pandemic, other infectious diseases continue to be problematic. And the, the issue for us is still many of these are now vaccine preventable, but we can't get vaccines into these areas uh, still because of, of supply issues and, and equity issues. So we, we've got to continue to focus on, on all of this to, to try and do what we can against infectious disease. Jason Kinderchuk, really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Al. You too. All right, just ahead of Kyle Irving from Eagle Vision, we're starting to get more information now on this 
tragic situation from a movie set in New Mexico where Alec Baldwin has fired a prop gun. Here's the latest. The director of photography was killed. The director of the movie Rust was hurt when Alec Baldwin fired a prop gun. Paul Syke has handled firearms for the film industry and says accidents like this are rare because... It's a very strict process, very controlled, uh, because they obviously know we're dealing with weapons that are capable of firing live ammunition. A spokesperson for Baldwin says the tragedy involved blanks, not live ammunition. Jim Ryan, ABC News. All right, so we now know, according to a Baldwin uh, spokesperson, that it was blanks. Um, Kyle Irving joins us now, partner at Eagle Vision. Kyle, thanks a lot for doing this. Yeah, hi, Hal. Hi. Uh, just a horrible situation. You don't know, I don't know. We're getting, you know, uh, drips and drabs of information as it comes in. Tragic nonetheless, but I do want to talk to you because you do a lot of filming. You're on a lot of sets, movie and television sets, and um, there are really stringent gun protocols, right? Yeah, you know, first I want to acknowledge that uh, Helena Hutchins is the name of the young woman who's now dead. And, you know, all of these headlines have Alec Baldwin's name because that's going to get people's attention. But Helena's the one who's not with us anymore. Um, And so, you know, I I wish that uh, her name was being said more than his because she's who's been lost. But Mm -hmm. um, it it is indeed true that we have incredibly strict protocols uh, around – any kind of real gun use on on a set um and so the way that it works is there's usually a a person in the props department the property department called an armorer or 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 a gun safety person um who is brought in as a specialist on on the day when any kind of 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 uh firearm is is being operated on the set and and those people have to have the appropriate certifications and handling permits um and and then you know the when when the actual weapon itself is brought out people are made aware of it there are safety conversations to talk about the fact that it's being used that day the actors are 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 meant to be trained and prepped in the use of of the firearm um, and, and then an, an inspection is done on set of the firearm and, and, and the fact that it is either empty or being loaded with a safe blank round. And, and that process is, is typically observed by uh, the first assistant director on the set. Um, there should, in theory, be a producer whenever firearms are being used or stunts are being done on the set and most certainly the actor. Uh, and so there's people who bear witness to the fact that the chamber is empty, that the barrel is empty, that the whatever is being loaded into the firearm is in, in fact a blank round. So for all of these things to have somehow missed a projectile of some, some kind being in this weapon is incredibly surprising. Um, and, and there, you know, we don't know what really happened, so we, we don't know where the failure came. But I guess the other, the other unknown in all of this is, besides all of those protocols, the, the obvious is that, you know, you never put a person, a real person, in front of those firearms. And so 
you know, even in the, in the occasions when a, a shot calls for a camera to be aligned with with the firearm for you know some reason, um, then safety glass is usually bulletproof safety glass is usually required to be in place. So this is a real freak situation. You know, what, why was the person close enough to be to have this happen? But not not only. Um, uh, Helena, but also Joel Souza, the director, uh, who was harmed in the event. Um, you know, a lot of questions to be answered here, a lot of unknowns. And and the one other thing I'll say is, you know, this is a, a lot of people on, on the Internet are talking about how so much of this can be done with visual effects now. And that's true. The, the tricky part in this particular case is because the nature of it being a Western there's an authenticity that comes with the firearms used at that time and the black powder that was used. They, they put smoke out of the gun. And that's a lot harder to recreate through visual effects than, than a flashbang or the, the kinds of things that we're used to seeing in, in, in film. So that's a reason why they still use blanks with period pieces like this. Wow, you just did a great job of explaining all that. I don't even know if I have a question for you, Kyle. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the the woman uh, who died. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned her name. And, and you're right. We sometimes do that, I think, in this business because, you know, time is limited. But I'm glad you took the time to say that, um, you know, she is, is the one that is is dead and gone and another person was injured. And, and I can't even imagine, uh, you know, we're hearing reports that Alec Baldwin was in tears. And, of course, he would be in just a, a tragic, tragic situation. I, one follow-up, though. Is there ever a time where there would be live rounds on a movie set? Well, there shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, no, because I have heard that from some people. Again, be. speculation on, on the Internet and stuff saying, well, sometimes they'll use a, a live round for a close-up and then replace it with a blank. And we now know, according to the, the Baldwin spokesperson that we just heard quoted there, this was blank. So I, I was just curious if there... Is ever a circumstance where there would be a live round that gets replaced with a blank, where there could be some confusion? But you're right, this does sound like it's, we'll wait for the details, all the details, but it really does sound like a, a horrible freak accident. Yeah, I mean, the, the level of irresponsibility that would have to be associated with using live rounds on on any kind of film set is, is hard to, you know, mm-hmm. even think about. I, I, can't, I can't imagine uh, that happening. And I know you mentioned Alec Baldwin again. You know, w- until we know the circumstances, it's hard to say. But but it, it it does right now feel a little bit unfair how much this is being focused on him. And you know, things like uh, the 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 New York Times headlines: Alec Baldwin fatally shoots crew member with prop firearm. Well, I mean, if the protocols were were followed, Alec would have seen that the gun was loaded safely, and he would have believed that he was using it in a safe fashion. You know, it's the it's the crew and, and everyone who works together and it's the producers and like all of these systems are in place and all of these people work together to ensure that everyone is safe. And and someone when Alec is wearing his acting hat and he's performing the role so that he, he does it with confidence, knowing that all these people have had his back and made sure that he can do what he needs to do with with the firearm in a safe way. So, you know, if all the protocols were followed, Alec would never have thought there would be anything wrong with what he was about to do.
Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the presence usually of a producer if a gun's being used, and he is a producer on this on this film as well listen kyle horrible tragic situation it it is and i but i really do appreciate you coming on and explaining it because whenever something like this happens there is a lot of speculation and much of it is is simply wrong and so i i wanted to hear right from you exactly how things work on a film set i really appreciate it well and how you know helena was here in winnipeg working on a, a production uh late in the summer and so she does have a connection to this place, and there are likely some people, I don't know if they're listening or not, who were part of working with her, and I, I'm sure it's impacting them on an even different level. Hmm. Have you worked with, did you work with her, Kyle? I, I, no, I didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, boy, that's, uh, yeah, that certainly adds a, a Winnipeg connection to a, a horrible story. Kyle, I really appreciate you uh, you doing this. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Tom. Kyle Irving, partner at Eagle Vision. Uh, Right now, we're going to talk about this pivot in Ottawa away from broad supports for business and individuals to a more targeted approach. Joining us on the phone now, Jonathan Allward, the Manitoba Provincial Affairs Director for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Jonathan, good morning. Good morning, Hal. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So uh, I guess the uh, money now will be uh, more focused on tourism and hospitality, uh, and they will get new wage and rent subsidies. Your uh, initial reaction? Well, I, I think the announcement yesterday will hopefully provide a bit of relief for business owners. You know, it was getting to the point where it's quite literally better late than never uh, to know what's going to happen as the current programs were set to expire just in a couple of days. Um, but I think there's going to be a lot of concern still. Certainly there's there's going to be good news um, for many of those businesses in the hospitality, um, you know, and, and certainly tourism sectors like hotels, restaurants, and some a few affiliated businesses. And for some businesses that have been very, very hard hit as well, there's going to be a new iteration of a wage and rent subsidy for those businesses. But I'm very concerned because what we had were very broad-based, accessible programs based on um, how your business was recovering. And these new programs have a very, very high barrier to access or are probably going to be very restrictive uh, to just those businesses in the hospitality and tourism sectors. Yeah, talk about that because what I'm reading in the in the news copy that I see uh, they're saying that businesses will still have to prove a prolonged and deep revenue loss. So what exactly does that mean? Yeah, the burden of proof is actually going to be twofold. So from uh, March 2020 to 2021, uh, that year period, uh, if you're in tourism or hospitality, you'll have to show a 40% revenue drop at least to be able to access the program, as well as at least a 40% drop in revenues today. Um, for the program that's going to be available for the hardest hit sectors, that, that threshold is even higher. It's at 50% minimum last year and 50% today. And my concern looking at the data that we've been tracking now really since the pandemic began is there's a very significant chunk still of Manitoba businesses that are somewhere between you know a 25% revenue drop and a 50% revenue drop. And as it stands, a lot of those businesses are going to miss out on these important programs altogether. 
So while there will be some help then for tourism and hospitality businesses, what about businesses in other areas? Are they panicking now? Because while maybe they aren't doing as badly as tourism and hospitality businesses in some cases, I mean, they're still struggling too, right? Yeah, one of the good pieces of news is the new uh, recovery hiring program that was set up this past spring, um, maybe prematurely, to help businesses subsidize new hires um, is going to be in place until uh, next May. And that's certainly uh, good news. It's a very accessible program. Um, but, again, it doesn't help you cover the staff that you have, uh, have on uh, before. It doesn't certainly help you cover all your other fixed costs like rent. Um, so for those businesses outside of a new support in the event, uh, hopefully unlikely event, that there's a lockdown again, they're going to miss out on, on most of the supports entirely, even if they, for example, are a gym and have a 45% revenue drop, uh, loss today, they'll, they'll have nothing. Jonathan, I, I know it's been bad uh, for a lot of businesses out there. We've seen businesses go under uh, through the pandemic. As we talk here on October 22nd of 2021, uh, how bad is it? We hear anecdotally from businesses, but uh, but what are the numbers? What what can you tell us? Give us a sense of how bad it is and how bad it's going to be going forward. Well, we just actually finished our October survey um, of Manitoba businesses and then our members elsewhere in Canada. And it's actually gotten worse in Manitoba from September to October. The number of businesses that are, are at full staffing for this time of year dropped. The number of businesses at normal or better revenues for this time of year dropped quite a bit, actually. And unfortunately, it's not surprising to us because we also do a forecast of how businesses are going to be doing. And we say, are you going to be doing better or worse three months from now, 12 months from now? So we've expected that coming up to this critical holiday season again, um, you know, a lot of businesses are very, very, very concerned, are not uh, expecting their business to be doing better. And I suspect part of that was the uncertainty about the, the federal programs. And, you know, for some businesses, yesterday was going to provide a lot of good news. For others, unfortunately, it won't be. Mm-hmm. And what are your members telling you? How are they uh, handling uh, right now? With I mean, there's so much, you know, if, even if they are still in business, and God, I hope they are, uh, there's so much they have to deal with, right? A labor shortage, uh, making sure yeah. people are wearing their masks when they come in. Uh, I mean, um, I don't know. I'll give you the final yeah. 30 seconds here. Yeah, still dealing with, uh, in some cases, staff being abused because, they're implementing the programs that they're required to. There are no shortage of concerns. I hope over the next few months, Manitobans, um, you know, treat each other well, certainly uh, be as respectful as possible to businesses, think and shop and support local as much as possible. Um, we need to make sure that businesses get through this winter uh, and, uh, you know, decide not to close down uh, and keep, uh, keep pushing on. You know what? I just—it's funny you would say about the the treatment. Um, I just wrote about this in my Winnipeg Sun column, Hal's headlines page two, Winnipeg Sun. Tomorrow there are uh, multiple surveys out. One survey of restaurant workers found that eighty percent say they have experienced hostile behavior from customers who didn't want to follow COVID safety protocols. Another survey says fifty percent are considering leaving their jobs, and of that fifty percent. 40% say it's because 
of customer hostility and harassment. So uh, you know what? I, we have to also, as shoppers, as customers, be more kind, but also take part of the blame for this labor shortage out there. Yeah, unfortunately, you're you're spot on, and I like I said, I hope everyone is just as respectful and understanding as possible. This has been hard on so many, so many people, not obviously just small business owners and their staff, uh, but right now they still really need our support and understanding. Jonathan, have a great weekend. Thank you. Thanks, Al. Joining us on the phone now, the voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers here on CJOB, Mr. Bob Knuckles Irving. Bob, good morning. Good morning, Hal. I'm at IG Field watching the Bombers go through their, what they call their walk-through the day before the game. And how are things looking? Any snow in the air? <laughs> no, there's no snow in the air. It's very <laughs> nice out here. I don't know what the temperature is. I didn't hear it. Plus three two or degrees. four or whatever. Yeah, yeah. two. There, here's the thing. There's no wind, uh, and it's perfect. Perfect late October football weather, I think, uh, it's been, you know, decent all week. I know it's been a dramatic change from the weather we had, but when you get to this time of year and you get the temperature in the six, seven, eight, nine degree range, you can't complain. Tomorrow's going to be ideal for this time of year. So, no, it's a very nice out here, Hal, out in the fresh air at IG Field. I said that earlier, good football weather, you know, and what a time of year, right, Bob? I mean, Jets game last night, uh, Jets game coming up again tomorrow, and uh, we've got baseball playoffs and football. I mean, the Bombers could clinch. This is crazy. The Bombers could clinch first place in the West. They would host the West final if they beat the Lions tomorrow. And still have three games left in the regular season, and I don't recall that ever happening with a Blue Bomber team in all the years I've covered the the club, Hal. They finished first last in 2011, and before that it was 2001, but they were in the East in both those situations. Remember, they went back and forth between the West and the East over a couple of decades there, and then you have to go all the way back to 1972 for the last time they finished first in the West. So this would be quite a remarkable evening tomorrow night if if they can do it keeping in mind that they spent many years in the east so it's not like they have had a dry run in the west for like 50 years or whatever it is but uh, mm-hmm. yeah it would be it would be something special and you know then we could train our sights on the, the 5th of december and because of the uh, pandemic everything's been pushed back the gray cup is on december the 12th about two or three weeks later than normal but uh, i just talked to somebody as i walked through the bomber store to come out to the field area here and they said are you looking forward to december 5th and i said yes i am because <laughs> that's when the west final is going to be played and yep. it certainly looks like it'll be here if the bombers don't do it tomorrow night against bc they still have three games left they need one win to clinch first place in the west i know the fans would like to see it happen here tomorrow night hell mm-hmm. um i i gotta ask you you know uh, we won't see our new uh field goal kicker uh tomorrow um, right. But you were sort of speculating, you know, what if uh, uh, what if, <laughs> if Murata comes out and you know kicks the lights out of the place, and then you got a problem. But I uh, so I heard that the other day, and I thought that was interesting. Here's my question for you: If the Bombers do clinch, does that cause any issues for Coach O'Shea? Right, with games left, and you've already nailed down uh, a home game in the West Final. Yeah, I don't know if you'd call them issues, but it certainly creates a situation where he's going to have to make some decisions about how he plays out those final three games. And I know his approach, first and foremost, will be to win the games. 
you can rest players, but you can only rest so many, Hal, because the rosters are fairly small. And you don't want to go out there and, you know, just kind of not play your best or put your best foot forward. You don't want to be stumbling around at any point during a season. This team has, you know, got a great feeling about itself. And if they go out and lose a couple of games down the stretch, that's not going to make them feel very good. So he's facing some very, very difficult decisions. You play Zach Kolaris all three games. You know, do you do you play Adam Big Hill and Willie Jefferson in all three games? And if you don't, which ones do you sit them out of? And this is, again, uh, if they clinch first place tomorrow night. So, And teams face this, not every year, but, you know, they've faced this in the past. And there's no right answer, Hal. There's no right answer to this because I've seen it done both ways where – you know, they just keep going with their front liners all the way. And I've seen teams back off and rest players and and, and still have success in the playoffs. So there, I don't think there's any right answer to it. But I, to me, it's one of the toughest decisions a coach has to make. And that's how do you play out games at the end of a season when you've got a playoff spot clinched and you have nothing in the standings to play for? Mm-hmm. Before I switch to uh, another sport here, I will just uh, tee up the pregame, 4 o'clock uh, tomorrow, Olympic Builders pregame show here on CJOB. Jesse is saying, Hal, I want to I want to listen to to both games. What do I do? Well, uh, our brother station, Power 97, is going to have the Jets game, and Bob's uh, going to have the football game here on, on CJOB. Tee up that pregame, Bob. What do you got planned? Well, Doug Brown will join me. Ed Tate, of course. Uh, you know, we're going to hear from Zach Kolaris, Ali Mortada. We had a real interesting chat with him earlier this week about the fact they've brought another kicker in. How does he feel about it? Does he feel pressure? Uh, you know, we're going to hear his comments about that. He's a really candid, refreshing guy. And then Brady Oliveira is going to play running back because Andrew Harris is a no-go, and so we'll hear from Brady. He's a a bright young kid who went to Oak Park and a rising star in the league, and he gets another chance to play tomorrow night. That's just a, a sampling of the stuff we'll have on. You know, it's interesting, Hal, on the Mike O'Shea Coaches Show Monday night, we a number of texts from people saying or lamenting the fact that the Bombers and the Jets are playing at the same time tomorrow night, and how do we fans choose? And I guess my response was very simple, that scheduling is a complicated affair, and, you know, both the Jets and the Bombers schedule home games where they can fit them in and where they think, you know, will work out best for their fans. And in, inevitably, and it's the same with out in B.C. and Edmonton and Calgary and, and Montreal, inevitably there are going to be some conflicts. That's just the way it works out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Um, I don't know if you were at the game last night. What did you think? The yes. Jets over the Ducks 5-1. I was there. I sat in the stands. Good. I went with my son, Kyle. We sat in the stands. Uh, we missed uh, some of the pyrotechnics, if I can use that term, in the light show at the beginning because we were just a little bit late arriving. Uh, but, you know, the atmosphere was fantastic. Uh, uh, fans are fired up and cheering and having a great time. And, of course, the mm-hmm. Jets came through with a with a win. Connor Hellebuck was really good. I thought he was back to his A game. And so, yeah, it was fun. It was an enjoyable experience. It always is at Canada Life Centre. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Kyle, your son, Kyle Irving. We just had him on the show talking about this tragedy uh, on the film set in New Mexico. And, uh, Bob, you know, you are a great football broadcaster. But, boy, I'm telling you, you're a hell of a dad, too, because you've got (laughs) some great kids, and and Kyle is a a fantastic human being. Well, I'm very proud of him. And the way he – I listened to it, and the way he described that situation was just perfect. You know, he was very careful about how he – you know, explained it all because it's such a horrible story. Man, yeah. oh, man, when I heard about that yesterday, I thought, 
you know, how could something like that happen? And I, I thought Kyle did a, just a wonderful job of describing it as as best he could. And there are still lots of unanswered questions about that whole mm-hmm. thing, aren't there? Yeah. And, you know, sometimes in this business, Bob, in the news business, we kind of skip right to the headline to simplify things, you know, and, and it was and it was great the way he brought up uh, Helena Hutchins name, uh, yeah. a young woman, a cinematographer who is is dead because of what happened on that film set. And as Kyle mentioned, she worked here this, this summer. And I'll just tell you something else about the film industry. And you probably know this from conversations with Kyle, too. Jackie now, for the last couple of years, has been working on film sets and doing television series. They become very close. They're a close-knit team, right, on a mm-hmm. on a film or, or on a TV series. They become very tight, very close. They work long hours together for long periods of time. So I get it uh, when they have something like this happen. It, it, it affects so many people. Well, yes, Kyle has told me many times about how you know, they have to work together. You talk about the long hours, and it's a collaborative affair. And, yeah, you develop, if not friendships, you develop, you know, associations with people. And, uh, yeah. yeah, it becomes a family, really. It, and so the tragedy goes, you know, just beyond one or two people. It really affects a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Bob, thanks for doing this. Have a great game tomorrow night. I will. Well, I don't know if I'll have a great game, Hal, but uh, I think it'll be a great game, and it'll be a great night at IG Field if the Bombers can come through and clinch first in the West for the first time since 1972. I wasn't even here then, Hal. (laughs) Before you. That's crazy. (laughs) Bob Irving, thank you very much, sir. Okay, Hal. Joining us now, as he does every Friday after the 1130 News, Dr. Cyrus Dirksen, drcyrus.com, D-R-S-Y-R-A-S.com. Cyrus, good morning. Good morning, Hal. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excellent. We'll get to, um, I hope it can hit you with a a question here, uh, just relating to this shooting, uh, again, I want to be careful how I say this. Alec Baldwin, a movie actor on a movie set in New Mexico, Uh, there was a prop gun, uh, it went off a uh, one person is dead another is hurting we're waiting for details on this it's it's tragic blanks in the gun we don't know what happened we've been talking about that this morning cyrus but what i want to ask you about uh, and this is your area of expertise when a tragedy like that happens sometimes senseless we don't know the details in this case it, it must be so difficult for individuals to come back from from tragedy like that alec baldwin uh, in tears, understandably in tears afterwards. Can you just talk a little bit about that for me, coming back from a tragedy like that? It must be so difficult, and not just, you know, in this case for Alec Baldwin, but family and co-workers, and it, it, it just is devastating. Oh, these kinds of things are, are so devastating, uh, you know, for people. One of the primary, or one of the uh, one of the big symptoms of trauma is inappropriate guilt. Uh, When people experience guilt or shame about something uh, that doesn't make sense logically, uh, but they still feel it anyway. And uh, sometimes, sometimes it can actually be the main thing carrying, you know, symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder forward. And obviously in in a situation like this, uh, when uh, somebody's actually holding a prop gun and, and it goes off and it actually kills somebody, there's kind of, there's all these things that you can start to feel uh, when really it's just it's just a tragic accident, uh, and um, I mean obviously they'll probably do an investigation. We'll find out more, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, 
presumably it wasn't uh, it wasn't his fault. Probably maybe it wasn't anybody's uh, you know intentional uh, right. intentional plan. And uh, so you know in situations like this, yes, somebody can be dealing with uh, with kind of self doubt and blaming themselves, and it can be a long road to get to the point where they kind of feel like, well, you know, these mistakes happen. Uh, you know, they're only human, uh, and uh, you know they're doing their best, and um, and hopefully they can kind of make that. Uh, make that connection and get to that next step. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine, though, uh, in a situation like that, a horrible tragedy like that and the guilt involved, you mentioned that word guilt, I can't imagine somebody being able to get through that without without the help of a professional like you. You know, trauma is an interesting thing. It's it's actually fairly amazing how many people get through very, very difficult circumstances, uh, you know, without professional help. So I don't want to make it sound like people need to see a therapist. Sometimes I'll actually have people come to me and they're like, I'm okay, but I'm coming to you because I really don't want something bad to happen. And I'll say, well, you know, let's watch it. I don't want to, don't want to do anything. I don't want to do like some intensive psychological thing when you're actually going to resolve this on your own. And so our brains are amazing things and they can get through a lot of things, particularly if we do have kind of informal supports around us, understanding people. Uh, most people will go through difficult things and have maybe symptoms of trauma initially. But most of these symptoms do resolve for, for a lot of people on their own. And so, but if yes, if it lingers or if you're concerned, it's always okay uh, to consult and monitor your symptoms, make sure that you are going to be okay. And, and, you know, in situations like this that are so tragic, maybe even worse because it's public, uh, who knows what people are going to be saying to him, uh, you know, uh, and uh, that might be very difficult. And uh, so, yeah, it's always okay to check. Thanks for, uh, you know, always being so willing to, uh answer questions on on the news of the day and then of course we always prepare some stuff to talk about and the next one i'm glad you picked this one um tips to support someone having a panic attack it's been years since i've had one but i did go Mm -hmm. through about six or eight months of my life where i had some panic attacks and it's Mm -hmm. horrible and and i don't know how you support somebody how do you doc well uh you know, there's there's some there's some do's and there's some don'ts around panic. One of the things to realize is that when people are experiencing panic, they obviously have a you know a great deal of adrenaline running through their system, and uh, one of the main dynamics is that they are over breathing, that they're breathing too much, hyper oxygenating, hyperventilating, uh, but they don't maybe feel that they are. They feel like they're getting enough that they're that they're not getting enough air, so they're actually breathing more and more uh, while getting too much oxygen and. A lot of the symptoms that they're experiencing are actually from getting too much oxygen. If you overbreathe, you'll experience a lot of panic uh, symptoms. You'll get dizzy. You'll uh, kind of maybe feel tingling in your hands and feet. Your heart will start to beat faster. And so telling somebody to take a deep breath, for example, may not be the best solution because they're already getting too much air. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you And telling them to calm down while they're probably already trying to do that. Uh, so that might not be as helpful. Uh, doing things like validating how difficult this is, reminding them maybe that they're in no danger if, if everybody's aware that this isn't a heart attack, that they know that it's a panic attack, then telling them that. Um, being calm with them, being calm beside them, knowing that uh, there could be some aftershocks afterwards, even when it's over. Um, helping them to do the opposite. This is an interesting one. Uh, actually helping them to do things that they don't think they can do. Like, I can't read right now. I can't do this. I can't be here right now. It's like, well, we'll be here together. Uh, you know, maybe you try reading, maybe you can read, you know, right now, and, and maybe they'll surprise themselves with the things that they can actually de- do, even though they feel like they can't. Um, so a lot of it is actually just being there and t- helping them to tolerate what they're going through um, and just uh, 
not being threatened by the symptoms, because that's when things actually start to escalate even more, is when you get afraid of the fear. Um, and so you want to try to help them with that for sure. It's like you're in my head this week, Doc. Uh, the next one here, five ways to start. Uh, five ways to get started when you just don't feel like it. During the pandemic, I have become an incredible procrastinator. And what I did, and this has been a long week. I know last week was a short week that felt long. This week is a long week that feels, a normal week that feels really, really, really long. So yesterday I had some things I had to do after the show, and I just said, that's it. I shut the door to the home studio, and I just sat down, and I went till about 7 or 8 o'clock last night, and I got what I had to get done, done. So give me Mm. some tips here, ways to get started when you just don't feel like it. Lock the door worked for me yesterday. Locking the door may be a good way to think about this. It's, it's uh, What they did in this research was they found that when you can detach uh, from other areas of your life, it's easier to engage actively in what you're wanting to get finished. So if you go to work, what they did with people was they had them think of things at home that they wanted to do that they were concerned about. Well, I'm still concerned about this. I still have this on my plate at home. When I get home, I really need to deal with this. And they're worried about it. So they would make a list of those things, and then they would tell them, Okay, let's leave these for later. I want you to detach from them. I mean, people would think about this kind of like compartmentalizing. Like you you leave uh, what's at home at home when you get there. And when they did that, when they did that exercise or even just told them, think about all these things in the rest of your life and just detach from them, they were able to more easily engage in the tasks that were at hand for them at work. And it worked the same way at home. If you could detach from work when you got home, it was easier for you to kind of engage in the task at home. It seems like when you're thinking about everything, when you're worried about all of the areas of your life, it's hard to do anything. It's hard to actually get started and be really engaged in the work when you're thinking about all the other things that you're having to not do in that moment. So that was a big one, and and that was one that kind of really resonated with me when I saw this. There's some other ones like rewarding yourself for for, breaking it up into small portions and rewarding yourself, catching distractions, making like, oh, I'm distracted about this. Well, you can make a list. This is kind of like detaching. You make a list of those things and make an appointment to do them later with yourself and, uh, and things like that. But all these were strategies to help you detach from those other areas of your life that you weren't doing at that moment. Interesting stuff. Lists kind of work for me too. If I've got a bunch of stuff to do, I make a list and then I, I feel like, oh, I, I can cross that off my list now. And as the list gets shorter, I get more motivated. I don't know. That kind of, that kind of can Lists work for me at times. Oh yeah. They're great. I'm, yeah. I'm behind uh, and finally, final headline here for Dr. Cyrus, understanding the process of change. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> we don't like change, do we? No, we don't like change. And it's hard to watch other people change because what we expect, if we, especially if we're doing something and we want them to do what we're already doing, we expect them just to change. We expect it to be a kind of one-step process, but actually it takes time and there's multiple steps to it. So the first step is like, I don't even think I need to change. You know, I don't want to change. I like the behavior the way it is. And that way it might be where you start, you know, you give the person some information, they talk to their doctor, they talk to their uh, you know, somebody else in their life, their boss or whatever, uh, or their partner. And it's like, no, actually, you don't realize it, but this is a problem for everybody around you, or this is a problem for you in the future or something like that. So giving them insight, then they have to develop insight. So you're actually working with that. Uh, then you kind of have to go into contemplation. like, oh, there's a problem here. And then they have to think about it. And it's like, wow, I feel bad about that. I feel sad about that. I feel happy about that. I don't know. What's the impact of this on my life? And and so you're actually dealing with the emotions of it. So first, you've got to be convinced. Then you've got to deal with the emotions. These are all steps that take time. Then you have to prepare, and it's like, well, okay, now I've gotten over the sadness. Maybe I'm actually ready to do something. I've gotten over the embarrassment that this is bothering other people in my life, and they have to make a plan. 
And then, you know, that takes some time. You have to troubleshoot. You have to figure out what you're actually going to do. And then once you have the plan, you actually have to take action. You have to restructure your environment. You have to buy whatever you're going to buy. You have to sell whatever you have to sell. You have to kind of move things around in your life in order to do this. And then finally, once you've actually got it in place, you have to maintain it, which usually is about actually keeping yourself healthy in various ways in order to make yourself, uh, put yourself in a place where you're not so stressed uh, that you actually go back and do some of those bad habits that you had before. Uh, So this is something that you have to watch and wait and work with people through. And that can be frustrating and realizing what's great about this model, uh, kind of this model like a a trans-theoretical model of behavior change is what it's called. What's great about it is it actually breaks it down to steps and helps people to be patient and know what to do as you're helping somebody go through the process. Cyrus, always great stuff with you. Talk to you next Friday. Thank you. For sure. Thanks, Hal. Dr. Cyrus Dirksen, drcyrus.com, D-R-S-Y-R-A-S.com. Best way to get a hold of Cyrus. 